Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. It is a big night tonight. Just moments ago, NBC News projected that Democrat Andy Bashir won the Kentucky governor's race. Okay, we're going to have a lot more on that, and we're going to have even more projections as soon as we get them in. I will tell you them. I will give you all the information. Polls have just closed in states across the country, states including Ohio and Virginia and, yes, Kentucky. And there are a number of candidates and issues that are on the ballot. Tonight, all eyes are on the issue of abortion. Last year, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, Republicans across the country felt the backlash at the ballot box, especially in states where abortion was literally on the ballot. And now tonight, Republicans in multiple states are trying to flip that script, trying to make their anti-abortion policies seem moderate, while painting pro-choice Democrats as the real extremists. Look, Look at what is happening in Ohio where a vote to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution is literally issue one on the ballot tonight. This is how the right is framing that choice. Late-term abortion is real, and so is the pain. Issue one allows it right up to birth. Abortions that are too late, too painful, and too extreme for Ohio. Will you stand for victims? Please vote no on late-term abortion. No on issue one. For more on issue one and what is happening in the state of Ohio, the great Steve Kornacki is at the big board, MSNBC's national political correspondent. Steve, what can you tell us, my friend? Hot off the presses, our decision desk has just made a call in Ohio on issue one, and we project that it will pass. Yes, on issue one will pass, putting the right to abortion in the state constitution in Ohio uh, with a provision that restrictions can be applied after the point of fetal viability about 22, 24 weeks. But you can see right now we've got more than a third of the vote in here in Ohio on this. It is leading. Yes, is leading by about 17 points right now. And as I was just uh, showing folks on Chris's show a few minutes ago, what's happening now is uh, counties are reporting out, are getting close to or hitting 100 percent of their vote. And what we're seeing is there was this test vote this summer where a Opponents of this put language on the ballot that it said he'd raise the threshold to 60 percent for a constitutional amendment. It was an attempt uh, to defeat this. That went down to defeat this summer. And we're seeing in every county that's completing, we're seeing results that are basically a mirror image of this summer. Uh, The folks who were against raising the threshold this summer are voting for this tonight in basically equal numbers in the completed county. So that this summer, that proposal to raise the threshold, lost 57.43. This thing is right now on track to land right in that territory. So that is the NBC News projection that this is going to carry. And you can see based on the completed counties that we've had so far, uh, it it could be by a a pretty healthy margin. Steve, there was a lot of, um, shall we say, maybe misdirection from the part of Republicans in the state who changed some of the language uh, in this amendment and on the actual ballot, that the language that will be enshrined in the state's constitution was not what voters actually voted on tonight. I believe uh, they voted on different language that referred to the fetus as an unborn child. There was all the sort of back and forth about the earlier ballot issue one in August. 
the ballot issue one now in uh, November. I, I, can you talk a little bit about what we know about how any of that played? Do we have any information about parts of the state that came in stronger than expected? You know, I think the story is the consistency between the vote this summer and the vote tonight. And it really feels like the folks this summer who had decided they wanted to vote for this uh, voted down that uh, initiative this summer to raise the threshold. And the, the numbers really look the same. That's what I'm struck by is sort of the sameness of all this. Take like a, a Washington County right here. Um, so we've got almost all the vote in in Washington County. And this is one of the counties where issue one is going to fail. But supporters of issue one are sitting at 40 and a half percent in this county with just about all the vote in this summer. Supporters of, of issue one, you presumably voted no this summer because they, they didn't want to raise the threshold. Well, no, in this same county, this summer got 42. So it, it really doesn't look like we're not seeing shifts of more than a point or two in these completed counties. So this really does feel like the turnout is higher, it looks like, but it, it feels in many ways like it's just a rerun of this summer and, and that folks on both sides kind of had the same sense then as they do now about what they're voting on. And they had their minds made up in both cases. Yeah, just to be clear for everybody at home, Ohio is a effectively a red state at this point. This is one of the first times voters in a red state have been asked to vote affirmative, affirmatively for reproductive choice. That's correct, right, Steve? Yeah, and that's that is, a, I think, a key point going forward, because this is also seen as a model for other red states and swing states in 2024, where folks are going to try to get this on the ballot in South Carolina, uh, for instance, Florida, Arizona. And the difference here, there have been other states that have put uh, abortion rights constitutional amendments in, but blue states like California, New York, Vermont, Maryland, uh, well, excuse me, Ca California, and Vermont, are the two have done it, New York and Maryland are trying they simply in California and Vermont said it's in the state constitution, right to an abortion. And they felt no pressure, no need to nod to any kind of restriction on that. The folks here in Ohio did feel that pressure. And that's why they also inserted that language that says restrictions can be placed basically after the 22nd, 24th week, somewhere in there, the point of fetal viability. And that's the additional language that I think you're going to see exported to those red states and to those swing states when folks try to do this ballot measure next year. Again, like in a place like South Carolina, in a place like Arizona, in a place like Florida, I think you're going to see language allowing for restrictions at the point of fetal viability. It was a test night in a red state like Ohio if giving that kind of provision for a restriction along with the constitutionally mandated right to abortion, if that combination would be politically successful. It clearly is in Ohio. And I think that then creates the roadmap for other states uh, for supporters of this next year. Yeah, we are going to see a lot of uh, playbook development this evening. I, I want to just get into some of the specifics here on issue one. It was being positioned by the right as a vote on late term abortion. And to be clear, issue one does not allow abortions up until birth on a whim. What it does do is allow for abortions until around the 23rd week of pregnancy. And then after that, it allows for the health of the mother to be taken into account. Issue one ensures that if a doctor believes that an abortion is necessary to save the life or the health of the mother, even late in the pregnancy, that the doctor could legally perform an abortion. 
Now, there is a lot of discussion tonight about what might happen if issue one failed, because the Republican majority on Ohio Supreme Court could have reinstated a temporarily frozen six week abortion ban that has no exceptions for rape or incest. We do not think that will supersede what has happened tonight. So we have a lot to discuss about what this means for voters in Ohio and, of course, what it means as an active issue for Democrats and Republicans in 2024. I want to bring in now Representative Chantel Brown from Ohio, who can talk to us a little bit more about what's going on in her state and what it portends for the rest of the country. Uh, Representative Brown, thanks for joining me tonight. Let me first get your reaction to what's gone down in your state. It looks like voters are voting yes on enshrining the right uh, reproductive choice in the state's constitution. Constitution. Yes, well, thank you for having me. And I would be remiss if I did not thank the voters and the volunteers who worked tirelessly to make sure that people understood what issue one was all about, the importance of voting yes on issue one. As you stated, this ends the extreme abortion ban that had no exceptions for rape or incest. It also gives doctors the uh, freedom and flexibility to give miscarriage uh, care for emergency care for miscarriages and access to contraceptives like birth control pills. So I could not be more proud and excited um, about the results that have come in. And I want to thank again the voters and the volunteers who work to make this possible. I do want to ask you about the sort of attempts by Republicans to make sure this didn't pass. There was this sort of chicanery between ballot issue one that happened in August where supporters of abortion rights were encouraged to vote no. And then there was another ballot issue one, of course, tonight where supporters of reproductive freedom were encouraged to vote yes. There was the purging of, I believe, 26,000 voters in late September from the voter registration rolls, which is very tightly up against the voter registration deadline, which some folks were worried about would discourage people from going to the polls or prevent them from going to the polls. There was the language on the ballot itself, which framed this as a a choice around late-term abortion and referred to the fetus as an unborn child. Those efforts did not seem to have deterred the voters of Ohio from making this a constitutional right for the state. What did you make of them as they were unfolding? Well, I think people um, heard the message loud and clear. Messaging still matters. Issues are important. And they made their voices known that the power still belongs to the people. What we were telling people as it relates to issue one is that it would allow um, them to make their own health care decisions without the interference of government or fear of being criminalized. That is the bottom line. And that abortion care is health care. So as you can see, just like in um, August, where there was a lot of confusion, this was uh, deemed, uh, I deemed it as the undercard or the first step in a two-step dance, but tonight was the main event, and people were prepared. We started sending the message out in August that you would vote no in August and yes in November, and so people were paying attention, and I'm, again, couldn't be more proud of the voters. So despite Republicans' efforts to continue to try to take away our freedoms, suppress, suffocate, and deny our voices at the ballot box, the people continue to show up and show out in Ohio. And I couldn't be more proud again because so often, um, so goes Ohio, so goes the nation. And what we know in Cleveland, um, which is the part of the district that I represent, nothing is given, everything is earned. So we knew going into this race that it was going to be a difficult fight, um, but we worked incredibly hard and incredibly, um, and we were able to deliver incredible results tonight. What's your message uh, to national Democrats who may be feeling 
a bit on their heels with this recent polling that came out in the New York Times earlier this week about President Biden's chances in 2024 and his numbers vis-a-vis a head-to-head matchup with Donald Trump in 2024. I mean, what 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 advice do you give worried Democrats at this hour? Well, there's another saying in politics, there's only two ways to run, and that's unopposed or scared. And those numbers were actually very frightening. So listen, again, we know that this is not going to be an easy fight. Um, we are ready to roll up our sleeves and work hard. But I would remind the voters that polling is just a snapshot in time, and the polls don't vote. And as we know, when it comes to polling, specifically with um, President Joe Biden, they've never proven to be favorable for him. But he's always shown when people count him out that they don't know how to count. Democratic Congresswoman Chantel Brown, thank you for making the time. Congratulations thank on you. the win tonight. Thanks. I mentioned before we got to those Ohio results that Republicans in the state were trying to paint Democrats as the radical ones on the issue of abortion. We are seeing a similar strategy play out tonight in the state of Virginia. Joining me now is Congresswoman Jennifer McClellan from Virginia. She is a Democrat. Congresswoman, thank you for being here. For people who haven't been following what's been going on in your state, Governor Youngkin has tried to paint Republicans as the moderate, sensible ones for embracing a 15-week abortion ban and Democrats as the extremists who want abortion on demand until the end of pregnancy. Looking at what happened in Ohio, how do you think uh, the governor's efforts are going to fare this evening? I don't think they're going to fare well. First of all, the voters of Virginia want our abortion laws to remain as they are now or be even less restrictive. Over two-thirds, actually over three-fourths of Virginia voters, that's what they want. They understand that the decision about when and whether to have an abortion should be between pregnant people and their providers, not Glenn Youngkin, not politicians in Richmond or in any other capital. And they're coming out and voting accordingly. We have seen high turnout in these off-off-year elections. And that's because people know their rights are on the ballot, their rights are on the line. And we worked really hard to make Virginia a safe haven for abortion access. It's the only state in the South without a ban. And Virginians are coming out today to show that's how we're going to keep it. And they're not buying what Glenn Youngkin is selling. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the fact that Virginia is the last bastion of hope for people needing reproductive choice in the South and the degree to which that resonated with folks inside Virginia, who to some degree are sort of more insulated than folks in other parts of the Deep South? They're concerned for, if you will, their regional, the the regional citizens who do not have the same freedoms that they do. Absolutely. You know, back in 2020, uh, I worked to carry a bill that got rid of medically unnecessary restrictions to abortion that were legal under Roe. And Virginians wanted that. They celebrated that. And when Roe fell, they understood that all of that progress could be undone. And they did not want it to be undone. And they were angry. And I heard all over Virginia, and I traveled all over Virginia this year and and campaigning for over 50 candidates at over 82 events. And people were upset that they were the first generation of their families to lose a constitutional right. And in Virginia, knowing that if Governor Youngkin gets a trifecta, he would ban abortion. And nowhere between New Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean would you be able to get an abortion if you and your provider felt that that was the right thing to do in your case? And Virginia voters don't want that. Um, Jennifer, in terms of Governor Youngkin, he has been seen as at the vanguard of some of the Republican policies that have become 
sort of national strategies. He was one of the first people to seize on this idea of CRT and try to weaponize it for a further social division and political gain. He's this he's a leader in road testing this notion that Republicans are for a moderate abortion limit. They are not calling the 15-week ban a ban. They are calling it a limit. They are trying to suggest, as I said before, that Democrats are the extreme ones. They are not litigating the issue of choice even, but saying reasonable people favor limits. Can I ask you, given his success on CRT, is your expectation that no matter what happens in Virginia tonight, Youngkin's kind of laboratory testing on abortion could be something we see replicated by Republicans across the country who understand their party is at odds with the American public on a very important issue that drives voters to the polls? Well, look, I would say that, first of all, when when Governor Youngkin became governor and, and started to govern, Virginians pushed back on his extreme agenda, even related to the curriculum in our schools. And when he tried to rewrite our social studies standards, Virginians came out in droves to say, no, we want a full, complete, accurate history taught in our classes, including how racism of the past impacts our policies in our communities today. They've made that loud and clear. They've made it loud and clear in the polls. And that's also part of what they're coming out and voting for today. They don't want this extreme MAGA agenda, even if it's wrapped up in a smile and a red vest. (laughs) Virginia Congresswoman Jennifer McClellan, thank you for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, we will continue to bring you all these live election results as they come in, plus what it all means for the expected 2024 matchup between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. There is a whole lot on tap this evening. Stay with us. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. We have some breaking news in the state of Mississippi, where incumbent Republican Tate Reeves is getting quite a run from Brandon Presley, Elvis's second cousin. Uh, For more on that, let's go to Steve Kornacki. Steve, what can you tell us about the race down there? Yeah, so they are a slow counting state here. 14 percent of the vote in Mississippi. It's been more than an hour since the polls closed in almost all of the state. That's an important part of the story I'll get to in a second here. You see in the running tally, Tate Reeves is is leading Brandon Presley as Democratic challenger, but it's a lot of Republican areas that have come in so far. The the county right now that has uh, produced the most uh, of its votes would be DeSoto County, which is right here, which is basically suburban Memphis, fast growing. Uh, Take a look at the result here with about three quarters of the vote in. Reeves is leading by 18 points. Now, I just want to think about this. In 2019, Tate Reeves got elected. His margin statewide 
was five points. Again, people think of Mississippi as a deeply red state, certainly presidential, but governor's races can be close here. Reeves won by five in 2019. So what we're looking at as these counties come in is, is, is Presley cutting the margin by five points or more in these counties as they come in. So DeSoto County, this is a biggie, 5840. It's an 18-point margin right now for Reeves. We'll see what happens with the remaining vote. But the margin in this county for Reeves uh, in 2019 was 23 points. That's exactly five points. That is exactly the level of movement that Presley needs to see in county after county. If he can cut the Reeves margin five points in every county, or if he can increase the Democratic margin five points in the counties they won, that puts him in position potentially to win this thing. So that's why I think that's a significant, uh, it's, it's not all, but I think that's a significant number there with three quarters of the vote in. The other big piece of news out of Mississippi is right here. Where the state capital, Jackson, is, Hines County, this is the biggest county in the state. Nearly one out of 10 votes are going to come out of this county. And one of the strategic emphases of the uh, uh, Presley campaign has been outreach to black voters. You know, a major uh, component of the population in Mississippi trying to get black turnout up as high as possible. Well, Hines County, not only the biggest county in the state, it's 70 percent African-American. And earlier today, turnout was so high they ran out of ballots in Hines County. And so they have kept the polls open in Hines County. They're closed throughout the rest of the state. We're getting numbers. So we don't have any numbers from the biggest county of the state. It may be a while till we get any numbers, but the biggest county of the state, a 70 percent black county, that's been a particular emphasis of the Presley campaign. That's a very interesting wild card as these numbers come in in Mississippi. Steve, what can you tell us about the third party candidate on the screen, Gwendolyn Gray, who's getting 1.3 percent of the vote and uh, I believe in DeSoto County. But how meaningful is that overall? Yeah, well, I'll show you overall here. It is potentially meaningful. One point four overall. So Gwendolyn Gray actually dropped out of the race. She's no longer an active candidate, but she dropped out after the, the deadline to get your name off the ballot. She dropped out and she endorsed Presley. But she is, as you say, still hitting one point five. Keep this in mind. If this does develop into a very close race, Mississippi's a runoff state. You got to It's not just enough to finish with the most votes tonight. You have to have 50 percent plus one. So if there's a scenario and it's too early to say we're ever going to get there. But if there's a scenario where Reeves and Presley are like one point apart late at night, it could be that both fall short of 50 percent because of the right now one and a half percent going to the third party candidate. If that were to happen, there'd be no winner declared tonight and there'd be a runoff three weeks from now. Uh, Steve, you know, let's talk a little bit about Tate Reeves. We were talking about Andy Bashir in Kentucky in earlier hours, being one of the most popular governors in the country. Uh, he is sort of defied the, the logic of these partisan times by being popular, even among Republicans as a sitting uh, Democratic governor in a very red state. Tate Reeves has his own baggage in Mississippi. Can you talk a little bit about how the scandals may have sort of personally eroded his popularity in the state? Yeah, no, it's sort of a welfare funding scandal, money that had gone to the former NFL player, Brett Favre. This has been dominating the news, it seems like, for a couple of years right now uh, in Mississippi. And it, it's sort of it's it's similar in a way 
to what Republicans were hoping for in Kentucky. In, you know, in Kentucky, they were hoping that the weight of being associated with an unpopular national Democratic Party and an unpopular Democratic president in Kentucky would bring down Andy Bashir, even though he was well-liked and even though he had a high uh, job approval rating. Well, Republicans in Mississippi are looking at Reeves and they're not seeing somebody with the level of personal or job approval uh, performance uh, uh, that uh, Bashir had in Kentucky. They're seeing an incumbent who has softer numbers. They're hoping that in Mississippi, which Biden lost by 16 points, that that antipathy towards Biden and the National Democratic Party will save Reeves when Presley. Now, Presley's an interesting story, too, because he is a relative of Elvis Presley. It's a little bit like royalty in Mississippi. And he's run a campaign in some ways that's hit some conservative themes, especially on abortion, that could resonate with a conservative electorate if they are looking for a bridge away from Tate Reeves. Presley's offered them a few on some social and cultural issues uh, as well. Last name like Presley does not hurt in a state like Mississippi. Uh, Steve Kornacki, there is a lot to unpack, a lot of analysis to come. Thank you, my friend, for the latest results. We're going to have more on all of this as the hour unfolds, and we're going to go back to that vote in Ohio tonight where voters decided to vote yes and enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. But first, the pros and cons of running against a criminally indicted Republican nominee, what the Biden White House can and should do about candidate defendant Donald Trump. Julian Castro joins me to talk about all that. Stay with us. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Bashir is speaking at his victory time. event in Louisville right now. Let's together. listen in. We get to the good times and we get to them together. And wow, are we getting to them. <laughs> Kentucky is on a historic win streak. The two best years of economic development in the history of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We're building the Brent Spence Companion Bridge without tolls. We're four-laning the entire Mountain Parkway. And we're pushing I-69 forward so fast that Indiana's scrambling to catch up. We're bringing clean drinking water to our counties, and we are running high-speed internet access to every home in Kentucky. We're building the two biggest battery plants on planet Earth. 
and the cleanest, greenest, recycled paper mill in this country. We have record high budget surpluses and record low unemployment. We've created almost 50,000 new jobs, $27.8 billion in new private sector investments. So tonight, I stand here excited and optimistic about what we're going to do these next four years together. four years, it's time for a couple things. First, it's time to get our educators the big pay raise they deserve. It's time for universal pre-K for every Kentucky child. We're going to keep attracting new jobs and new industries, building our workforce, building the Kentucky we have always dreamed of. And it's amazing that we're here because we have been through a lot together. Devastating tornadoes in the West, historic flooding in the East. And after each, I made a promise, a promise that I would help rebuild every home and every life. And thanks to the people of Kentucky, and thanks to this election, we're gonna see that promise through. You are listening to Kentucky Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who in recent weeks was expected to have a somewhat tight battle against uh, Daniel Cameron, the state AG. But with 87 percent of the vote in, the incumbent governor, Democrat, has a healthy six point lead. I want to bring in former housing secretary and 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro. Mr. Secretary, uh, just listening to the incumbent Democratic governor of Kentucky, who has a healthy lead and has been the race has been called for him taking a victory lap there saying that this is not about uh, the right or the left. This is about rejecting team R or team D. You have to run not against someone, but showing show vision and uh, not so division. Anger politics is over. Granted, this is the state of Kentucky that Donald Trump won by, I believe, 20 points. Um and a Democrat who survived to be a two-term governor here. Remarkable story for these times. But how are you looking at the events of this evening? Well, I mean, there's no other way to interpret this tonight than to say it's a great night for Democrats. Uh, it's also, Alex, as you know, this is a, a really soothing, warm shot of Kentucky bourbon uh, to ease all of that anxiety that national Democrats have been feeling for the last couple of days since that New York Times poll came out and, and other recent polling, this nervousness about the 2024 cycle, uh, all of the caveats still apply. We're still a year away from 2024. Uh, these were state elections. There wasn't a single uh, congressional representative, senator, or of course, President Biden wasn't on the ballot. But this does, I think, give Democrats some important lessons. Uh, and Governor Bashir alluded to one right there. Look, you have to be for something and you have to go on offense. He did that. He did that on the issue of 
uh, protecting the right to choose. He did that in pushing back against these culture war issues and specifically the attack on trans kids. We saw how powerful the issue of reproductive freedom was in Ohio tonight and also in Virginia. It looks like Democrats have at least retained the state Senate there and they're going to be able to block uh, young Governor Youngkin from uh, draconian abortion legislation. So there are some lessons here and Democrats should learn them. Uh, it also, I think, means for Joe Biden that this is kind of a roadmap going forward. It's clear that the campaign needs to make some adjustments uh, and needs to address a weakness that not only the poll the other day, but many polls over the last year have shown with some core Democratic constituencies. This is a good, I think, little reset and starting off point for that. Do you think the Biden team needs to draw more of a direct contrast with Trump? I mean, we know just from uh, spent reporting on spending, I believe that the Biden campaign and the DNC spent roughly seven million dollars on positive TV ads this year, along with less than one hundred thousand dollars on contrast ads that name Trump. The, the wisdom was that the Republican primary season would do enough damage to Trump that people like Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott would go after Trump effectively enough that Biden wouldn't have to. That, of course, has not turned out to be the case at all. Do you think it's now incumbent upon the sitting president to more specifically call out Donald Trump and his 91 felony counts? Yeah, this is going to sound like a contradiction from what I just said a second ago. But yes, look, you have to be for something. And and Joe Biden's campaign, I think, has laid out all of the different great accomplishments that he has under his belt. But the best thing that Joe Biden has going for him in 2024 was the best thing I think he had going for him in 2020. That's how terrible Donald Trump is when you put his record in front of the American people. And that record has only gotten worse with 91 criminal indictments, four different trials uh, that may be going on by the time uh, that we have the election in November 2024. And he may even be convicted, in which case all bets are off. Uh, so absolutely, the Biden campaign needs to spend more resources, more focus and attention on reminding people how bad, how uniquely terrible a president Donald Trump was. And the thing is that right now, yeah, Trump is on TV, you know, on the networks because of his testimony at the trials and so forth. But he's not on every day. He's not reminding people by being in office of how bad a president he was. And I think that he's benefiting from that. Those primary opponents of his are too scared to point out his failures and his weaknesses. Uh, and so it's going to fall upon the Biden campaign to start with that earlier than they wanted to. But if they don't, they risk Trump getting a free ride all the way until next summer or fall. And I think that would be a mistake. Do you think uh, to that end, Trump's relative and I, I put the word relative in italics, silence in terms of xenophobic racist commentary and instead focus on election interference and the criminal uh, future that awaits him in 2024 in terms of trials. Do you think that is why Trump has been seemingly able to make inroads with voters of color? I know the Biden campaign has looked at the numbers in the latest polling about Biden support among, for example, Latinos, and is very, very worried that there may be some significant realignment here in the way uh, that the parties where the parties draw their their base of support. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you saw a preview of this in the 2020 election after 2016. I mean, I think if you ask people, well, what was the defining issue for Trump in that campaign against 
Hillary Clinton, it was immigration. And I noticed that, of course, he you know, he was still as bad on immigration as he had been before, but he shut up about it a little bit more. He wasn't as strident. He didn't put that issue out there in the same way in 2020. Uh, and he did better numbers, a little bit better with uh, Latinos. Uh, and what the Biden campaign needs to do is to remind those voters, those core constituencies, uh, what he stands for, what Biden stands for, and then how bad Trump has been. Uh, Donald Trump is going to do everything he can to try and hoodwink voters, including Latino voters in places like Florida and South Texas and, and I'm sure parts of Arizona and Nevada to make them think that, yeah, you know, I, I will be better than my reputation. But I think that enough people are going to be able to see through that if if they're reminded of the track record of the words and the actions of Trump in the past. Well, if we're learning anything from tonight is effective campaigning, people will show up for you. There is a big night tonight. Uh, Secretary Castro, thank you for helping me make sense of all of this in the context of the big race that awaits us all in 2024. Thanks for your time tonight. Coming up, Ohioans voted to protect abortion rights today, despite Republican attempts to make the process a very confusing ordeal indeed. We're going to discuss right after the break. Stay with us. This year, Ohio was the only state to have a ballot measure concerning reproductive rights. A yes vote on the citizen-sponsored issue, issue one, amends the state constitution to enshrine abortion rights into law, essentially undoing a six-week ban passed by Ohio Republicans, a ban that is currently tied up in court. Now, our decision desk is projecting that Ohioans have voted yes on ballot issue one, with 65% of the vote in. About 56% of people voted to amend the Ohio state constitution, giving individuals in that state the right to make or carry out their own reproductive decisions comes after a long and confusing campaign led by Republicans. On the ballot itself, voters weren't given the exact language that would be added to the state constitution if they voted yes. Instead, Ohio ballots contained a summary that was written by Secretary of State Frank LaRose, a Republican who is very publicly anti-abortion and who did not hide those views in the wording on the ballot. But now Ohio voters have made their views, their own views known loudly and clearly. Joining me now is Jessica Valenti, the author and publisher of the Abortion Everyday Newsletter. Jessica, thank you for being here. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts and feelings about what is unfolding in the state of Ohio tonight. Uh, there were so many Republican attempts to misdirect voters, offer disinformation, make this a referendum on late-term abortion and parental consent. Uh, did anything surprise you in particular tonight? You know, I I didn't want to have too much hope. I was very cautiously optimistic, but I, I'm not surprised, actually. I'm not. I think Ohio voters, just like voters everywhere else, are uninterested in being lied to, and that's what Republicans tried to do here. They tried to lie to them about this amendment. They tried to trick them. They tried to hold up their ability to even vote for the amendment at all. Um, and I think what we saw tonight was a lot of righteous anger, not just about abortion rights, but about those attacks on on democracy as well. 
Can I just talk to you about the attempts to frame what Republicans are pushing for nationally? It's a 15-week abortion ban in the state of Virginia. Governor Youngkin there is saying a 15-week ban is really just a limit. We're the moderates here. The Democrats are the extreme ones because they want abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. Uh, That that framing, litigating the sort of third trimester, which is where people who have abortions have them because the life of the fetus or the mother is in danger. They are vanishingly rare. Uh, That strategy didn't work in Ohio. Nonetheless, it feels like this is the new playbook for 2024. Don't litigate choice, litigate the time frame. And litigate language, right? What we saw in Virginia and what the national anti-abortion movement is very, very interested in is ensuring that their candidates and the media don't call abortion bans bans, right? In Virginia, we saw multiple candidates come out with campaign ads that said, literally, it's not a ban. I don't support uh, an abortion ban because they know that Americans really, really don't like abortion bans. They're incredibly unpopular. And so they're trying to distance themselves from these bans and paint this 15-week ban. Um, they're calling it a reasonable compromise. Um, it's it's completely ridiculous, both because it's not accurate and because we know that they're not going to stop at 15 weeks, right? Um, Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, big national anti-abortion groups, didn't spend millions of dollars in places like Ohio and Virginia to stop with 15 weeks. Do you think that the parental parental consent is the other sort of boogeyman and a lot of these conversations having nothing to do with abortion on any issue? Republicans always want to inject sort of parental consent as the reason why you should not support something or or support it, depending on what it is. That, again, fell flat here. And I wonder what you think about its staying power as a sort of line of argument for Republicans intent on passing abortion bans. I just don't think they can get around talking about the truth, which is that they want to ban abortion. They want to take control of people's bodies and lives and freedom. Um, and people know that voters don't like to be tricked. They don't like to be lied to parental rights. And the other big message that we saw that failed tonight was anti-trans bigotry, right? They know that their anti-choice talking points are extremely unpopular. And so they were hoping that anti-trans bigotry and parental rights would be a little bit more popular. And clearly that wasn't the case. Jessica Valenti, big night for uh, Democrats and progressive causes this evening for freedoms uh, writ large. Thanks for your time. Coming up, we will talk about the election results tonight in Virginia, where Democrats are hoping to hold the state Senate against Republicans. We're going to be back at the big board with America's sweetheart, Steve Kornacki. That's next. It is a big election night here in America, and we are still awaiting results in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where the entire state legislature, both the House of Delegates and the state Senate, both houses are up for grabs. Joining me once again is the great Steve Kornacki. Steve, I know it's relatively early here, but what can you tell us about what's happening in the great state of Virginia? Yeah, let's take you through here, uh, and it's going to take a second to load. we got a running tally of the seats as they are called in both chambers. So as a reminder, this is the Senate you're looking at. Coming into tonight, Democrats had control of the Virginia State Senate, 22 to 18. Uh, currently, We have 17 seats that are called for the Democrats and we have 14 seats that are called for the Republicans. Now, a couple critical developments have happened tonight in terms of what has been called a Republican incumbent state senator uh, has been has lost 
has gone down to defeat. So again, Republicans need to be making gains here, not losing seats. And there are also two state Senate districts in Northern Virginia right now, one Republican held, the other Democratic held. We are in the vote tally. There's a significant vote in and the Democrats are leading the vote tally in both of them. Uh, there's still more you know, to be counted. And we're not exactly sure where in uh, those districts the outstanding vote is. But there are some encouraging signs there for Democrats and some troubling signs, I think, for Republicans in terms of what has been counted so far uh, on the state Senate side. Again, the, the goal here for Glenn Young and the Republican governor was to flip the state Senate and then to hang on to the House of Delegates. Republicans came in tonight with a 52-48 advantage for the House of Delegates. What we are counting right now, what's been counted so far and declared, is 42 for the Democrats and 32 for the Republicans. Again, this includes a seat that Republicans held that have, they have lost. Um, and you look at it here and there seems to be there's a number of seats as well where Democrats, again, it's the, the turnout, the uh, returns are not full. There's still wiggle room in them. But Democrats lead in a number of seats that they would need to flip this chamber. We'll see if that holds as they come in. Um, what we were looking for, I think, in Virginia coming into tonight, there's a, a whole bunch of districts that had voted for Joe Biden in the presidential election and then had voted for Glenn Youngkin in the governor's election. Um, and, and I think what you're seeing is a lot of these Republican candidates, they're outperforming Trump. Certainly, they're not all reaching Youngkin levels in these districts. All right. I know Governor Youngkin's going to be paying particular attention to all of this, given his involvement in the race thus far. Steve Kornacki, thank you, as always, my friend. Always good to have you here on Big Election Nights. That is our show for this evening. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.